Hello, and welcome back to Champions of Security. I'm your host, Jacob Garrison, and today we are going to be talking about the common pitfalls of cloud security with two cloud experts, Michael Teo and Parveen Singh. Michael Teo is an assistant vice president and principal information security engineer at U.S. Bank, where he's responsible for providing visionary guidance and enhancements for cloud and application security product offerings. He has over 10 years of experience as an information security professional. Michael specializes in designing and deploying cutting-edge security solutions to enhance cloud security posture, prevent cyber attacks, and mitigate risks to help organizations remain secure throughout their digital transformation. He's also a security evangelist and author, with his most recent feature being Collaborative Security to Defend the Modern Threat Landscape. We also have Parveen Singh, who is a cloud consultant specializing in Microsoft Azure services. He helps companies use the cloud effectively and efficiently while also keeping the security-first mindset and saving costs. He's worked with various organizations to help them migrate and secure their IT infrastructure, including government organizations, software development, retail, e-learning, and education sectors. He also runs a blog at parveensing.com while helping IT enthusiasts find their next IT role and upskill to grow in the cloud. Hey, Michael and Parveen, thank you so much for joining. I'm stoked to be talking to you both today. Yep. Thanks for having me. You know, super excited to be here. Thanks, Jacob. Of course. Of course. So let's let's just get into it. Now, we're going to be talking about cloud security today. And I think a good place to start is to set people's expectations for what it's going to take for them to understand it. So in your experience, how long do you think people need to spend learning about or playing around in the cloud to really get a grasp on what cloud security is and what it's going to take on their part? I can go first if, uh, yeah, uh, on that, you know, it's kind of an ongoing process with security from, from my ex uh, experience, from what I've seen in the industry and people doing is, you know, very early on, you you do try to learn some services and resources and end up, you know, making a, making a big hole and then, you know, some somebody exploits it and then you kind of realize, okay, this is, sure, you, you got to fix that thing. So it's kind of, from my side, it's kind of like an ongoing consistent learning, but uh, usually, you know, people people do start to get hold of uh, the security aspects uh, as they try to play around with more services and understand from really a wider uh, perspective, you know, learning like 10 services in the cloud, you, you have a like little knowledge of how it can break and how something can go wrong versus you having like a more broader picture of, you know, 50 services, you kind of understand, okay, how this may fall into uh, security loopholes. Yeah, absolutely makes sense. And and Michael, what about you? What do you think? Yeah, no, I I would uh, I would agree with uh, Parveen's statement. I think uh, you know every organization or every individual maybe learns at different speeds and different rates. Maybe um, you know if you have a background with traditional sort of on-premise security concepts, um, then you're at like an an, uh, an advantage. But um, you know maybe if not probably be better to, you know, take it service at a uh, service at services at a time. So, you know, maybe focusing on compute first and then getting into storage or database and some of those sort of foundational aspects that are similar to on-prem and then sort of, uh, you know, just playing with, with the various security features and settings and um, kind of like Harveen said, you know, just digging a hole and sort of figuring out, uh, you know, what you've uh, sort of unveiled. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, it kind of varies across different organizations. You know, some organizations are maybe, you know, born in the cloud, so they may be more 
um, aware of the various cost security risks and what they're presented with. But, um, you know, for those organizations that are, you know, planning migrations, it may be uh, more of a sort of learning curve if they're sort of newer to the cloud. Yeah. Yeah. The migrations aspect is is a super, super important conversation because to your point, people who are cloud native, they're born there. That's what they've always done. It, I don't know if it would feel more or less intuitive necessarily, but it, it certainly is more at the forefront of your brain. That's where you started. So you've always had to deal with it versus. Yeah. I, I think uh, from your question, Jacob, you mentioned like how long it takes for somebody. Uh, I think there's a difference between how long it takes and how long, uh, how early they should know. You know, maybe it takes somebody six months to realize they need to do security, but, you know, they should be doing it from ground zero whenever they start, you know, doing some something like with the migration, right? As soon as you start doing migration, you got to consider all the security aspects at that time instead of, you know, waiting six months, doing all the migration, and then kind of figuring out what to secure and what not to. Yeah, and, and so if someone, let's dive into the migration thing. If somebody was trying to do a cloud migration and let's say they don't have someone on staff who is really confident in their knowledge of cloud security. How how would you navigate that? Like, what would be the best steps to take to make sure that as you migrate to the cloud, you are keeping all of your customer data secure, you're keeping your business secure as you go through that process? Yeah, um, there's always like, you know, people out there, um, being consultant myself, uh, that's what kind of typically I see uh, companies doing is they, they don't have any in-house uh, resource to just go out, find somebody who has done it before or who are in the market already doing it. What happens with that is, first of all, they don't have to hire somebody in-house and they got the expertise uh, at relatively quick quicker uh, versus having to interview somebody and you know going through the whole process of really finding somebody who can do it. And then third piece is the best practices. The person who is doing it for you as a consultant has probably done it like 50 times and they kind of know all the all the bits and pieces of what could go wrong, you know, how mm -hmm. this may fail or, you know, what. And they can actually give you some specific direction based on your organization. So I think having somebody outside your organization uh, and do it for you uh, for a short-term project is, is a great uh, great way to go. Okay, perfect. And and. I guess another thing that puts in my mind is at what point does it make sense for them to hire someone? Like, let's say you you have a consultant come in and help you with your migration. Would it make sense to bring someone on full time after that, in your opinion? Or do you need somebody there who is your dedicated cloud security resource? Or is, is that happening at a certain company size? Like, is there, are there any, you know, thresholds for these things? Yeah, Michael, do you want to answer? Or do you want to... Yeah, I, I would say that it's it's always beneficial to have um, internal parties um, focus on cost security um, because these people will be more privy to how you operate as a business, um, maybe um, have more insight into, you know, DevOps pipelines or where the critical infrastructure lives and sort of have a better understanding of the business and maybe can better um, describe and, and understand the lay of the land. Um, I think, you know, with, with cost security migrations, it's always beneficial to lean on the vendor for, for guidance. You know, you know, we, we, we met your cloud and, you know, obviously the big three, um, they do a pretty, pretty good job at, you know, sort of implementing security into that product, you know, whether it's, you know, frameworks and regulatory guidelines and standards, you know, a lot of that stuff can be built on top of your, your cloud sort of, uh, infrastructure. And so I, I'd always recommend that, you know, working really intimately with, 
the CSP that you select and um, really um, just taking it step by step when when migrating assets to the cloud and you know not trying to build Rome in one day um, you know just take take a more phased approach and really uh, you know buckle down and understand one service at a time versus just trying to do it all at once because that's what leads to some of those you know cost security misconfigurations or you know maybe you know, you don't have necessarily the resources or the, or the skills and expertise to, to move as fast as you want to. So I definitely recommend, you know, just, just leaning on the vendor as much as you can to, to so they can make that security donor, donor migration. Yeah, yeah, I can I can add on to that. Um, so I think uh, still having somebody in-house, you know, um, depending on the size of your organization, if it's like too small, uh, still premature in cloud, they're just trying to kind of migrate a few things and understand how it works. Definitely, uh, upskilling the current resources or already handling the on-premises um, is definitely where to go and, you know, much easier path than hiring a consultant full-time all the time, you know, for your long term, which is not feasible for some companies. But yeah, for bigger, bigger organization, they definitely have more bandwidth to maybe start hiring as soon as the project starts. But having consultants kind of lead that project and, you know, full-time devs or engineers kind of doing the implementation or following along and understanding how whole things work instead of actually administrating or controlling the aspects of which consultant can do better than somebody who is just kind of learning. Yeah, yeah you, you both brought up a bunch of things I'd love to dive into. And I think where I want to start is, Michael, you mentioned leaning on the vendors and that these cloud security or the cloud service providers, you know, like the big three, of course, being Amazon, Microsoft, Google, um, but anyone else who's running your cloud, he said leaning on them because they embed security into their products. And that brings up the whole point of the shared responsibility model, which most cloud uh, CSPs are going to give you like, hey, we handle the, this part, you handle that part. Yeah. And I think that for some people who are learning, at least for me, when I was starting in the cloud, it was a little bit confusing about, you know, what specifically you as the end user needs to secure. So in in your experience, where do people make mistakes when they're trying to hold up their end of the shared responsibility model? Like what parts do you need to look out for and be really careful about? Yeah, no, that's that's a great, great question. And I'm, I'm glad to speak to it. I think uh, you, you sort of brought it up that that common misconception is that you don't even have to worry about security at all, uh, which is, you know, sort of very, very incorrect. I think a lot of people assume that, you know, because you can't necessarily physically see or touch your infrastructure that, you know, whoever it is that's managing it is is taking care of it. And that is true to an extent, right? So Amazon, Google, GCP, they're going to make sure that, you know, your hardware is secure, secure is running, you know, the latest updates and patches, you know, on, on your servers and no one can physically break into the data center. It's secure for that level, but, you know, depending on the level of uh, resources or different types of services that you're using, um, there may be more responsibility that sort of falls on your plate. So, you know, there's infrastructure as a service. So, you know, you're talking about more so compute resources, virtual machines, containers, you know, Lambda, all that type of stuff. Um, you know, sorry, uh, platform as a service where, you know, you're getting into more like cloud functions. Uh, sorry, I misspoke Lambda. Um, and obviously there's the SaaS piece, which we're probably all sort of familiar with, but at each of those various levels and tiers, um, the security risk falls more on the end user. Um, you know, maybe having to focus more on like, um, you know, exposed storage buckets, you know, are, are we responsible for, uh, sort of controlling those ACLs and those role-based access controls on specific resources or specific objects, 
uh, making sure that you sort of understand who is responsible for what when it comes to, you know, that sort of level of security. And, you know, same same thing with, you know, platform as a service, um, same thing as software as a service. So I think, you know, really just educating users, educating uh, leadership, and sort of really um, understanding what is your cloud security, uh, cloud uh, service provider offering in terms of security for those various levels of, of cloud computing. Yeah, Parveen, is there anything you want to add on to that? Yeah, I think I'll, I'll step back a little bit on this uh, idea of shared responsibility. You know, uh, how I see is uh, it's kind of a few different folds. Um, one is like, wha- what's, what could go wrong? Um, where do people go wrong and why does it happen? I think the why is also really important. That why do people do things wrong in cloud specifically? It's just because the mindset. They still have the like old on-premises mindset, like nothing nothing will happen, nothing will break. Um, you know, in terms of some services like virtual machine, you leave the RDP port open and you, you assume, uh, expect like no nobody will be able to log in because they don't have the username and password. But the ports are open, right? So I think in, in that scenario, like, you know, they, they don't understand the um, aspects of how it could lead into a bigger thing, you know, having a public API running, uh, running some, you know, database queries, which you think it's, uh, unless somebody have the URL, they won't be able to access. But, you know, these days, uh, everything is scrapable. Like, people just scrape all the internet all the time. And, you know, those those things take uh, seconds to get out in, in the in the hands of the people who are actually looking for those uh, juicy information. Yeah, that actually reminds me, one of my buddies, and I won't mention his name or his company's name, but when they were younger, they built a startup. I think they were like 20 at the time and didn't really know what they were doing. And they had a, a public URL they used for debugging that showed a bunch of performance data on their system and revealed a, a bunch of information mm-hmm. that they were like, oh, well, no one knows this URL and they're not going to guess our login info, so they're not going to be able to see it. But like theoretically, if somebody figured it out, they would have access to so much information about the inner workings of their software. And, and to your point, like, people don't, I don't know if they don't realize or they just accept the risk. Like, I, which one do you think it is? Do you think it's, or could it be both? Like, where where does it fall on the the ignorance to risk acceptance scale? I think it's more of the ignorance at, at this point. Like, it's more of ignorance and this risk acceptance because they, they just don't know what uh, what else is there. Right? If they're coming from one premises with the mindset of you know, I'm doing this, it, it, it's not gonna help. It's not gonna do anything bad. That mindset is still the same, right? They, they, they'll just go work in the cloud with the same mindset. So I think it's just ignorance at this point. You know, acceptance could be, you know, if they understand, okay, you know, this dashboard doesn't give anything sensitive. It's just, you know, a bunch of CPU metrics, which is not going to break anything. Uh, if somebody knows it, yeah, uh, that could be a different scenario, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. And, you know, every everyone has sort of a, a different risk appetite. You know, maybe business A, they care about, you know, their, their monitoring and observability logs being public. Some may not. So uh, it kind of just depends, right? Uh, every business has different rules and compliance and regulations that they have to abide by. Um, you know, maybe a startup starting out very fresh, maybe they don't necessarily care about that at that time. But eventually as they grow, they'll probably have to, you know, start to buckle down on that type of thing. Yeah. Yeah, the uh, early stage companies that get away with a little more leniency because they're not being regulated so strictly. Exactly. 
But when they need it, two goals, their end end points are, yeah, and of course, their end points are not so popular for somebody to exploit, right? They're still kind of in a pretty early stage. Yeah. So you, you both brought up a lot of really interesting points. And, you know, we talk about cloud security misconfigurations. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. But one thing that I hear a lot, and Michael, I think you were the one who mentioned this, was access control lists or ACLs. We talk about certain IP addresses or certain users being able to access resources they shouldn't. So when you're coaching people through cloud security and they're, you're trying to explain, hey, how do we establish which computer or which person should be able to access this particular resource, what are the considerations you take into mind? And do you have any ground rules that you would share for how people can establish an effective or a, or a secure policy? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question and definitely should be on the top of everyone's mind. Uh, in, in the realm of security. But I'd say it's like well, a fundamental ground rule is just, you know, the principle of least privilege. It'll, it'll go such a long way in regards to anything access related. Um, you know, just sort of understanding, you know, what is the least amount of access that I need to be able to, you know, fulfill this duty or to, you know, get whatever it is done. Uh, and I think a lot of this requires, you know, doing research, you know, having conversations with users, with networking folks with um, subject matter experts and really understanding, you know, how should we be provisioning this access on how long should access be provisioned for? And then what is like the, I guess, the cleanup, you know, once this access is no longer needed, how do we remove it so that we no longer have to worry about it? I think there's a lot of, um, you know, push in the industry for sort of, you know, zero trust architecture and sort of um, never trust, always verify um, sort of me- methodologies being um, implemented in security. But, you know, at a fundamental level, all that it really means is just least privilege. Um, so I think, you know, reviewing access permissions regularly, having some sort of uh, identity access sort of governing team that is, you know, reviewing access, granting access, revoking access, um, conducting access reviews. Um, and I don't just necessarily mean like, reviews uh, of access that are related to identities like human users, but also like service accounts, also like firewall rules, also, um, you know, network security groups, right? Uh, All of these sort of, um, I guess, present the aspect of giving access to a service or a resource or um, whatever it may be. But I think, um, you know, just having uh, people in place and technologies to be able to, uh, you know, grab that access, revoke that access, and then continuously review that access. Um, so that way you're not out there sort of deploying anything that's overly permissive and that could sort of leave, leave the floodgates open to a malicious actor. Yeah. Yeah. I love your point about not leaving the floodgates open. And and is there a way to automate that process? You know, you mentioned having dedicated a dedicated team that regularly reviews every access across your entire uh, yeah. ecosystem. But how much of that can you automate? And and you, this could be, you know, in the specific big three cloud service providers, or it could be uh, just in general outside of their services. Yeah. Yeah. So go ahead. Can, sorry. Yeah, I, I can answer that. Um, just a big on automation, actually. So I just kind of try to find uh, automation in everywhere possible. <laughs> Um, with the access control list that uh, Michael brought up, you know, there are some services in Azure specifically, which I've seen companies using like uh, PIM, which is, uh, which I've seen some companies using it like really beautifully. 
It's like they have a master account which doesn't give you any access. And you just can access your email accounts and then they have another account which can let you escalate your access. So you go in, request permission, which stays for like half an hour, one hour, two hours. And companies are like being creative in terms of like opening up the access for only like two hours, let's say. You want to do something in the privileged mode, just do it for two hours. Go back, request again if you need to, otherwise it, it, it goes back to zero. And uh, that kind of leaves the door closed as you, as you kind of forget maybe you're working on a VS code, writing some code, and you know, two hours later you start working on a different project and end up missing something in the previous one. That kind of uh, possibility is uh, reduced when you when you have that limited access, which kind of expires over time. And I think in terms of the other services which Michael mentioned, like you know, so resources and uh, permission to those resources, there are some security policies we can always leverage in, in Azure which can help us monitor uh, what's happening if somebody's getting, you know, a higher permission or somebody's uh, adding some permissions on, on the go. The security policies we can use, there's some activity logs we can always monitor using automation uh, accounts. I, I did not realize that you could have a, there was a service that allowed you to get access for only a couple hours. That is, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Your payment is really, really nice. It's really slick. Sweet. And have have you heard a lot of end users complain about it? Like, does it does it frustrate people, or is everyone pretty on board in your experience? I don't. Uh, I've not seen any people complaining. It's just uh, I think it's the companies have to set some policies if they want to secure their resources, mm -hmm. right? Which which uh, end user comply with? Um, if they want somebody to not have admin access from you know all the time, twenty four hours. And they're only working like, let's say on privilege mode for like one hour a day. They don't need like other 23 hours on privilege mode. So that also reduces a lot of risk of uh, account hijacks and account access from somebody else, right? So I think um, people do understand uh, why it is in place as long as, you know, they are told that, you know, this is why it is. And of course, developers and uh, senior people who are dealing with technology every day, they kind of understand why this, this thing is set in place. And somebody working in the office, uh, not dealing much in technology, they probably don't even need that access. So they're, they're, they're less impacted by this uh, by these changes. Yeah, and I think too, um, it, it comes from, you know, the top down. You know, you kind of have to, like like Parveen mentioned, you know, it had to kind of have to come down from leadership to, to create that sort of culture of security first. Um, you know, security always kind of get like the bad rep of, you know, telling people, no, you can't access this or you got you to gotta get this approved. You know, you kind of have to take the long road. Uh, but I think with, with tools like PIM, it sort of just allows you to sort of retrain your brain to say that, you know, I don't really need this access indefinitely. I only really need it to perform this task, which would take four hours. And then I really don't need that access again. So I think it's, it's a cultural thing. And, you know, obviously there's going to be a lot of resistance to change initially. But I think as you start to sort of just uh, preach, you know, why, um, you know, security is necessary and sort of that it's everyone's responsibility um, doing stuff like like privilege, identity management, um, so it just becomes a part of uh, a culture over time. Yeah, I think that that's got to ring true everywhere. Like if your leadership is not taking it seriously, then it, other people aren't going to take it seriously as well. But if you can say, hey, yeah. We're implementing these controls to keep all of us safe. Here's the procedure for you to be able to get through it. And you try to make it as painless as possible for people to behave in a secure manner. And mm -hmm. you you are encouraging and facilitating the behavior that you want to endorse. Yeah, that's yeah. Amazing. 
there's another feature in PIM which I really like is uh, review management, which is like, you know, a, a manager get a list of all the people who have requested access or who actually have active access to um, with the, you know, some, some form of owners or contributor. And then managers go in and approve those weekly just, just in case, you know, somebody doesn't need that over a week. It automatically goes to deny, so or automatically cancels the privilege uh, unless manager kind of keep stay on top of it and make sure they review it every week and approve that, so that you know person doing it uh, can have the retain, retain the access over time. Yeah, yeah, and, and to your, to the point you were, were talking about earlier, Michael, with the the zero trust mentality and the least privilege mentality, right? Like you operate in a way where you take away the permissions that aren't needed by default. And then you have to go in and allow them to, to, to your point, reduce the blast radius, reduce the impact, reduce the attack surfaces and keep, keep everything safer. Um, and this, you know, we talk about security, there's the whole CIA triad and availability is one of the really major concerns with the cloud, right? It's a huge push or a huge reason when people go to the cloud, they don't have to have multiple data centers. They have automatic redundancy. Um, I would love to hear from both of you. What, what do you recommend as a best practice? to in terms of how much redundancy you need or how you set up your your cloud provisioning to make sure that these people aren't losing data or they aren't losing access to the services they need or their customers can access their platform uh, let's say like a, a data center goes down or an availability zone goes down like what how do you encourage people to to provision their cloud uh, cloud access yes um there's no concrete answer to this. And I guess it's not like a one size fits all. It definitely depends on what are you, I guess, required to do for obviously various reasons like compliance and, and regulatory reasons. Um, but I would always recommend that you should employ some sort of, um, I guess, multi-regional architecture, um, especially if you have like critical services, um, you should be deploying those uh, across multiple regions. So you're not sort of putting all your eggs into one basket. Um, I would also recommend sort of, you know, depending on what these critical services may be, um, you know, sort of implementing maybe like some sort of load balancing, um, just in case, you know, someone maybe tries to, uh, you know, DDoS your network or DDoS your application, uh, just have some sort of resiliency and, uh, load balancing features in, in your application would be, uh, beneficial. Um, and I think just overall, again, stemming from leadership. Having a disaster recovery plan, uh, being able to prove and validate that you could, you know, at a drop of a dime, back up your data to another region and still recover that in, in case of ransomware, or, you know, a DDoS attack. So, um, you know, if, if I was to say three things in regards to like preventing outages and, and you know, data resiliency and, and um, disaster recovery, I think multi-region is, is a must, at least for your critical resources and services. Um, anything that is like business critical should be in multiple regions. Uh, you know, lever leveraging load balancers or something that could help distribute traffic um, across various uh, servers or resources. And then uh, disaster recovery is, is something that's, that's critical. I think, I don't think um, people hit on this enough. Uh, just having like tabletop exercises to walk through what happens if we get hit with ransomware? What happens if we get hit with a DDoS attack? What is our plan? Are we testing that plan? And, and are we, you know, continuously ensuring that it works? Yep. Parveen, do you want to add on anything? I think I have a, I have a bit different take on this uh, from what I've seen, kind of, you know, people talk about having disaster recovery and, you know, doing tabletop exercise, which Michael mentioned. 
but sometimes uh, really have to set up the grounds to able to be able to do those things. You know, having some sort of uh, configuration management in the place in case you need to recover quickly. Because you know, if you're doing everything manually from the portal, you know, clicking through the browsers and deploying services. You cannot replicate those things. So having some sort of templating in the background using maybe ARM templates, Terraform, that can uh, provision your resources like within a few seconds uh, re- relatively quicker than, you know, you're doing it manually through the portal. And um, I think it, it falls back even to the architecture diagram when we when the project even starts, you know, having uh, a reference to which data sources needs to be, you know, available all the time, such as databases or cache, stuff like that. And some source resources which can be, you know, uh, which which can have a different recovery point objective, you know, if they can be recovered like five minutes later, there's no loss in that. Stuff like, you know, VMs, uh, which are not really hosting any data, but just maybe applications or some web applications or some functions, which don't really retain any sort of information, but just running the API endpoints. So having some design which of course is multi-regional but uh, as well as some some sort of services which are running on cold and warm um, that can be turned on uh, actually turned on all the time but still kind of running on a lower tier that uh, they save cost that it, it needs to be uh, they can be you know change uh, tiers can be changed they can be you know have, they can have more cpu and power and they just kind of take on the workload from the primary location yeah yeah, you brought up like the infrastructure as code concept and the whole idea of horizontal scaling, which is probably an entire an entire podcast episode worth of material there. Yeah, in terms of those details, but yeah, just keeping that available and understanding. And, and to your point, you brought up price, Parveen, which we haven't talked about so far, but trying to understand okay, how much do we need to provide for our customers to get a positive experience while also not overpaying and over provisioning uh, the amount of resources that we're using for these tools. So it's it's definitely an intricate balance. And th- that's actually something I'd love to hear from you both. When you're dealing with cloud security concepts, how often do people ask you about the price of things? Like, is that is that something that falls into your responsibility when you're doing cloud security? Or does it is there a certain person in, re- in an organization that has to, uh, you know, answer those questions more? Yeah, I think uh, the pricing question is really the first thing uh, whenever a company decides to do a project it's really the first concern like how much it's going to cost and usually you can put a cost on certain services but there are some services that you cannot put a number on such as you know storage accounts it really depends on how much data you store and how much your velocity of your data is that you're pushing in and storing it for maybe different uh, research so yeah pricing is definitely a concern um, but you know being an architecture, uh, you do have visibility in, into all of the all the aspects of uh, how much how many users are gonna be using this in terms of uh, rough idea. That gives you a ballpark of uh, how much compute and how much uh, resource you want to provision so that at least the end user experience is good. But otherwise, there's always uh, always uh, opportunity to turn on monitoring and uh, keep an eye on uh, how much resource is being utilized and you know. There are some things that uh, these resources can do automatically, which is deprovision if it's not being used. So some of the services are like really intelligent and they deprovision. Um, they don't do the skew, but they do deprovision the number of instances based on the consumption. And and so for deprovisioning, do you have to set that up when you? I guess how do you set that up? How do you set up automatic deprovisioning in a cloud platform? 
Um, I, I can give example of like Azure function, which is like a like a really typical uh, function that people may run, you know, running their APIs. You know, with the APIs, you really don't know how many calls you're gonna get in a in a second. It could be like you know, millions. It could be like hundreds. Uh, in that case, it, it doesn't make uh, make sense to you know keep that uh, instance count to accommodate millions of requests all the time. You know, at, during the night time or off time, you may need to deprovision. In that case, function gives you the capability to set a boundary of you know how many minimum resources you need and how what's the maximum count you want to go up to. In that, uh, it really counts how much request is coming in, and if it's able to solve the request in less number of instances, it will deprovision the rest of the services, and you just like you know only paying for the amount of requests that are coming in. Cool, cool. So that I need to add to that real quick. Actually, that's that's a good point too because um, I've been at organizations where teams would actually security teams would actually sort of present. Uh, savings and cost savings and cost reductions in the cloud as sort of like a metric um and teams would kind of brag about it like so i worked on a project where we were um, developing um security standards for databases in the cloud and um so we ran these reports we ran these sort of compliance checks and, and standards checks and we got a list of you know databases that came back and we started reaching out to our resource owners and we ended up finding out that a lot of these databases were either no longer needed had already been migrated and could be deprovisioned. And because of that deprovisioning, we were able to sort of save a lot of money. And then we basically just charted that that savings over time. And, you know, we presented it to leadership as sort of like a bragging uh, moment. We were like, hey, like, you know, due to our security research and sort of evaluation, we're able to identify you know, this number of resources and deprovision them, which led to you know this amount of cost savings. So I think, you know, cost is definitely something that, you know, security does sort of hold, hold close to home because um, ultimately, you know, the less money you're spending in the cloud, you know, kind of the less risk is out there, um, if you kind of put it like that. So I think there's a yeah. good point that you bring up with, with uh, costs. There's another uh, thing in cost right now in cloud, which is really popular is reserved instances. So if you're sure that, you know, you're going to use like 50 compute VMs every month, you can reserve 50 compute VMs. And that can be, you know, utilized really uh, intelligently. Like if, if, say, you know, out of those 50, um, you say every month I'm going to use 50, but in a month, maybe there's a week of overutilization and then three weeks of less utilization, it really adds up to 50, then you're only paying for 50. Like there, there's no there's no penalty for using more or less because it's a compute per hour. So based on how many hours you use, you really like paying for uh, efficiency as well. If you want to speed up the process in a day or two, and then go back to normal. So reserved instances are like really shining right now because companies are trying to opt in for longer contracts, like one year, three year, and they almost saving like fifty percent of the cost. Wow. Yeah, and that goes back to the point that Michael you had brought up earlier about security teams can have a reputation as being naysayers, and and people don't always get along with their security team. But to your point, if you're doing your duties and helping the business save money, you're proving that like you're invested in the business's success, then it helps you build that positive relationship with all the other teams. And it helps you build that community of trust and instill the, the secure by default culture, which yeah, it just goes full circle. One thing that that you had, we've sort of talked about, but haven't really dove into specifically is is sensitive data in the cloud. We talked a lot about databases in the cloud, but 
are there ways for people to understand where their sensitive data lives? What data is sensitive? Like what are the tools or the resources available for companies to know where they have the particularly sensitive assets living inside of their cloud ecosystem? Yeah, I think uh, there are a few different perspectives on this. If you talk about like, uh, let's say just Microsoft specific, since, you know, uh, that's my expertise. Uh, in Microsoft 365 world, there are services that you can use which can classify data for you. you know, if if, they, if you have SharePoint files um, stored with some credit card information, with some data of births or stuff like that, um, those tools can scan those files and really tell you that wait, this this file is categorized as sensitive because it has this data. And it, it, it doesn't really stop there. It also blocks people from sharing that data uh, further which is, uh, which is you know, end goal of securing the information is here. it doesn't leak or it doesn't go further from uh, from where it is, you know, in terms of sending by email or sending some shared links. That's that's part of the 365 world. Uh, if you go to Azure, you know, of course, there are sensitive data in terms of the credentials. Uh, in that case, uh, there's key walls which people should leverage more often uh, just because they are cross-functional, they're cross-usable, you can... You can have them anywhere. If you're running DevOps pipeline, you can use them there. If you're running uh, code on your local computer as well, you can just use your, you, you can authenticate and use the key wall secrets and refer to them even from your desktop. So really don't really have you know, need to have, you know, a clear coded password in your local uh, environment files anymore because you have those uh, capabilities which key walls provide you in, if you're a developer. Awesome. Yeah, Michael, is there anything you want to add? Yeah, no, I, I'd echo everything Parveen said. I think, you know, especially now with, you know, data being you know, sort of everyone's sort of focused from a security and privacy perspective, uh, you know, DLP, data loss prevention, data loss protection um, is is very essential to, to anyone, not just those in the cloud. Um, but, you know, specifically to the cloud, I think a, a good sort of first step is really just like you said, data classification, labeling and tagging. Um, having some sort of like standardized method of identifying where data is um, and sort of where it moves and, and how you can quantify it. Um, I know, I believe Azure has like purview um, to sort of classify that sensitive data. Um, and I think they have like built on functionality with like Defender for Cloud where you can actually mask data that resides on database so you know, only various users can see it. Um, and then again, we don't apply those sort of sensitivity labels an alert on it as needed. Um, but I think, you know, fundamentally, all those tools are out there. Um, you know, if, you know, cost is a factor, you probably want to leverage some of the, the native stuff. You know, I think GCP has cloud DLP where you're sort of able to mask data and, and um, you know, hide, hide any sort of sensitive data from end users, um, encryption at risk. So, you know, Parveen mentioned security keys, uh, rotating access keys, um, so yeah, I think you know there's there's solutions out there. It's not easy. I think data governance is going to become uh, very top of mind of, of all leaders in security, um, especially because um, you know there's there's lots of fines out there that companies are getting slapped with for for not treating their data um, the best or you know unintentionally exposing it. Um, so I can see a future where you know a lot of these cloud providers um, sort of build more robust capabilities into into their systems. Um, but then even like third party tools. Um, I've seen, uh, I think Wiz, Wiz IO have a pretty robust uh, data security posture management platform where they're sort of able to 
um, you know, track that data in motion within your environment. They can see, you know, which VMs have access to which databases and, and what data resides on that database. So um, this, this functionality is out there. It just, you know, depends on, you know, how how skilled are you in, in leveraging those those capabilities? And then, you know, do you have, uh, you know, kind of circling back to leadership, do you have that support from leadership to then be able to sort of deploy a program that sort of governs uh, data, data at your organization? Yeah. So, yeah. One thing, one thing I'd say, you know, uh, what thing that really stops people from using uh, all these tools, you know, DLP, Purview, firewalls, is it's mostly the cost because these yeah. things are expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, Purview, we gotta store all the logs. Azure firewall is like super expensive. It's by per hour the cost is too much. Um, and for s- small companies, they they kind of don't see the value of uh, deploying those uh, expensive services. They just you know. They would rather go manual way of uh, making sure everything is in place. Yeah. Yeah. And that kind of goes back to the the conversation we had at the beginning of there's a huge landscape out there of things you could learn and things you could use. And, and, you know, you learn, you learn along the way, but for some people that are in large enterprises, right, they have a, a wider selection of possible solutions. And, and to your point, people at smaller companies have probably a smaller list of things that are realistic for them just based on the the value they're going to get compared to the price point right so so as you go into a more and more complex environment the, the sorts of things that could even be on your radar start to expand pretty dramatically it sounds like yep cool well we are starting to run low on time i want to make sure you both have the opportunity to make a call to action so is there anything that you want to promote to the audience? This could be anything at all. And Parveen, would you like to start? Yeah, um, I can go first. Uh, I've been in cloud and security for, for a long time now. So most recently what I've been uh, trying to do is help students um, who are coming out of colleges and even like the low-level IT professionals like IT help desk uh, professionals, I'm trying to help them get into cloud. Just because I've been teaching cloud for the last two years uh, as part of my full-time career, like training hands-on labs, building stuff. So I've been trying to uh, teach students. Uh, most recently, I've hired a few students uh, who are in Canada right now, uh, kind of giving them a roadmap and uh, helping them get to cloud. Because, of course, the first role in the cloud is it's kind of the it's kind of a big jump uh, from somebody who is doing on-premises. Amazing. So for any Canadians here, make sure you talk to Parveen if you want to learn about the cloud. And and Michael, what about you? Uh, yeah, no, um, just just to sort of close out, I would say just keep fighting the good fight. Um, as security professionals, I, I say, you know, we're all sort of in this together. Um, we're all trying to sort of defend our organizations, defend our data and protect, you know, our precious resources. So, you know, continue sharing, sharing educational resources, continue, um, you know, continue learning and continue networking because we're all in this together yeah absolutely so to everybody listening make sure you're fighting the good fight and uh, if you're a Canadian fighting the good fight feel free to give Parveen a call specifically (laughs) awesome well hey uh, Michael and Parveen thank you so much for being here this was an amazing time talking to you both thanks for having us Jacob thanks Jacob appreciate it thanks for tuning in to this episode of Champions of Security be sure to come back next week we're going to have another exciting guest on this very streaming platform See you there.